Hebrews, please, and chapter 8. Verse 1, Hebrews chapter 8, not a long reading, but just a couple of verses that have been on my heart uh, during the week. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set On the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary. And of the true tabernacle. Which the Lord pitched. And not man. Let me read that again. Now of the things which we have spoken this is the sum. We have such a high priest. Who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary. And of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Let's have a further word of prayer, shall we, as we uh, meditate on these verses together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you've given us a living book full of your truth and the reality of your Son. And Father, we come before you and we need you to open the Scriptures to us, Lord. We ask that, Lord, you would be interpreting the word to us. We pray that we would receive bread from your hand this morning. Lord, we ask that this would be a living time where, Father, your people are ministered to, that they're blessed, they're encouraged, they're built up. Lord, you know where we need encouraging, even healing. You know where we need your balm. You know where we need rebuking, even. You know where we need correction. We thank you, Lord, that all these things are with you. And Lord, we want to pray that in this time together, you would be gracious to us. You would give clarity of thought to the speaker and that, Lord, there would be that anointing upon the speaking and the hearing of your word alike. And Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, it would be mixed with faith, that we would respond as you would have us respond. So, Lord, we ask for your help. Deliver us, O God, from every distraction of the evil one. Help us to know you, drawing us close to you. In this time, we pray. We look to you for all these things. And we thank you that, Lord, you are able to help us. We bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the writer to the Hebrews here at the beginning of chapter 8 speaks about summing up what is already said in a short sentence. Um, And he says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. So what I want to just briefly mention is the things that he's spoken of. Just to go back a little bit into the previous chapter, if you look back, the 
the, the book of Hebrews is a wonderful book. It really is all about the exhorting of the Lord Jesus as better than any other um, foreshadowing that has come on the face of the earth before him. So if you look at back at the beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, you see the Lord Jesus is compared to the angels, and the Lord Jesus is considered as better than the angels. He's compared with Moses. He's better than Moses. Moses was a servant in God's house, but the Lord Jesus is a son. And you see this constant exhortation of the Lord Jesus brought to the church here, brought to these Hebrew believers who were struggling in their faith because they were starting to come under persecution. You know, dear friends, when you're starting to come under persecution, what do you need? You need to be able to see the Lord afresh. You need a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus. So often we have our own ideas of what will help us out through difficult times. But essentially, the way we get through hardship is by seeing the Lord. <laughs> it's by having something of a vision of how high he is, how glorious he is, that he's on the throne, that he is exalted, that there's nothing above him. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. There's nothing that outwits him. There's nothing that comes before him. And there's nothing that can challenge his authority or what is decreed for all eternity. That's the God that we worship. And the enemy will try to eclipse that view of the Lord Jesus Christ all the time in your mind if he can. But it's in seeing the Lord that we're all changed. It's the key to everything. It was the key to Peter being able to walk on the water in the midst of the most horrendous storm. It's the key to you being able to walk on the water in the midst of your horrendous storm. How are you going to get through it? You can't get through it by just intellectually putting together some, something that you try to persuade yourself with to believe. What you need is much more than just theoretical knowledge. You need an experience of the ascended Lord, high above it all. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. You know, the floods have lifted up their voice. The Lord on high is higher, is above all these things. No wonder the psalmist says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You know, but actually, when you think about it, the way to get in through with God isn't simply getting an answer to your problem. It's in seeing the Lord Jesus. That's how Peter could walk on the water. So often we just want to, you know, as I say sometimes, we just say, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, get me out of here. I'm in such trouble, just get me out of this problem. Bail me out, Lord. And sometimes the Lord bails us out, but we never learn the greater lessons when we're bailed out. Sometimes that's all the Lord can do with us, is bail us out. Because if he doesn't, well, we're just in an absolute mess. You know, that's the way we get. We're like that. But the Lord wants to teach us deeper lessons. He'd rather teach us how to walk on the water than quickly stop the storm. He'd rather teach you to be able to walk in the storm and prove him in the storm than have to say, okay, look, you're in such a panic, I'll have to close this storm down, hey? And shut everything up because we're in a panic. The greatest lesson is learnt when we walk on water. But the enemy will do everything again. You know, he's very persuasive, the enemy. Haven't you noticed? And he could do a song and dance just to get your attention away from the Lord Jesus. He can, he can, I mean, the storms that he can create in your life. 
It's phenomenal, isn't it? And they seem so horrendously big, don't they? They're like a tsunami. And you see them coming straight for you, and there's just no way out. What are you going to do with that? Well, there's nothing you can do with it. But you, all you want to do is run, right? Get out of this place. But actually, the Lord wants us to learn to prove him in the place of impossibilities. Because that's where faith is provoked to new levels in our lives. That's where faith grows. We prove the Lord, you know? And God wants us to be those that see his son. Everything changes in the seeing of the son of God. Your very countenance changes in the seeing of the son of God. It says this in 2 Corinthians about beholding him, doesn't it? Beholding him. We're changed, yes, in a, in a mirror darkly, but we're changed from one degree of glory to another in beholding the Lord. When was the last time you just sat before the Lord to behold him, not to inquire necessarily, not to be asking him a thousand questions, but just to see him? I remember years ago, I was asking the Lord about some problem, and in my mind's eye, it wasn't a literal vision, this, but it was something of the impression in my spirit of the Father taking me to the Son and saying, here is your answer. And I thought, I haven't got an answer. And the Father was saying, here is your answer. I didn't have an answer to my problem, or did I? What the problem was is that I had the wrong questioning. <laughs> I didn't have an answer to my question, but I had the answer to my problem. And so often when we think what our problems are, they aren't actually our problems. We need the Lord to dig deeper into our hearts to see where we're at. And the Lord shows us lovingly the things that we don't know. But actually look away from yourself. Look under the Lord. This is what the Lord was doing with these Hebrew believers. They were starting to come under persecution for their faith starting to really struggle. They were starting to find, as it were, the, the opposition were breathing down their necks. And what does the writer to the Hebrews do? He gets them pointed to Jesus. That's what he does every time. Just exalts the name of the Lord Jesus, exalts his person right through the passages. You read Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. You'll find it's all about him. And it's so odd, isn't it, sometimes, haven't you found this, that the Lord doesn't answer your problem, but he steals your heart. Your problem is still with you. The issues have not changed. The circumstances remain the same, but you have changed in the circumstances. See, the Lord doesn't want us to be those that are dependent on circumstances for us to be praising God. He wants us to prove him in the hardest times. This is part of growth in maturity, isn't it? And this is what the Lord wants for every one of us. He's bringing us on with him. It's part of our maturing, part of our growing in the things of God. When we're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine, we're not easily shaken. We learn to look away to the Lord. It's amazing what happens when people see something of the Lord. I think of C.H. Spurgeon when he got converted. He knew so much of the things of God before he was converted. He'd read Pilgrim's Progress, he'd read the Bible, he'd read this, that, and the others. He, his food and drink was the writings of the Puritans. But when he got converted, he saw something of the Lord. And that was it. It was an experience. It was a revelation. You see, that's what we need. It's this matter of revelation that's so often missing today. 
We put our emphasis on trying to make things relevant for people so that they can understand things in a theoretical way to try and get them their head around them. You can't get your head purely around spiritual things. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We need the eyes of our heart enlightened to know things concerning the Lord Jesus. It's when the Spirit of God opens our eyes that makes every difference in the world. And C.H. Spurgeon, here he was. He was a man trying so hard to walk for God and work with God. And then the Lord opens his eyes and he sees something of the Lord. And within a year and a half, his whole village is ablaze with revival. It's amazing what can happen when the Lord gives a glimpse of something of his person to one of his chosen servants, and that spreads. Think of Paul the Apostle. Let's get even more dramatic. Paul was a man riding out against the things of God in the name of God. He had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. And he rides out to destroy the church, which he thinks is a menace. And the Lord meets with him. And the brightness of the light. And he's so taken by this light, and he's blinded by it. Until three days later, Paul had a heavenly vision. He saw something of the Lord Jesus. Have you seen the Lord? One of our greatest needs in a day of opposition and persecution is to see the Lord. I often hear people say, I don't know how I'm going to be able to cope when the persecution gets hot. How are we going to be able to handle it when things are shaken? None of us of our natural temperament knows how we're going to handle things, do we? We've got no foresight into our actions concerning the future. But the question isn't so much, shouldn't be so much, am I going to be able to cope? Am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to do that? The question is, or should be in our hearts, is this. Is the Lord faithful? That's the key. Lord, would you give me a revelation of your beauty, of your majesty, of something of your power? You see, if you can see, you can endure. The endurance isn't in the willpower of the natural man. Stoicism is not biblical. Hallelujah. Because I'm not naturally very stoic. I, I quite likely think, oh no, got another problem on the way. That would be my mentality. But you know, some people are so difficult. They're, they're nuts that are so hard to crack. No, I'm just going to go on. No, I'm just going to go on. And it's their own strength. And in the end, the Lord has to show them that they can't do it. And bring them into impossibilities until finally they crack. And then the Lord can deal with them. Some of us are of tougher skin. doesn't matter whether you're tough skin, thin skin, whatever kind of skin you've got. The end of the day, when it comes to the Lord shaking all things, we all get found out where we are spiritually. Where we are spiritually. Are we going to depend on the Lord? Are we going to look to Him? 
Grace is given in greater measure when there's greater opposition. Understand? We don't know how we're going to face things. None of us do. But all we know is the power is with God. And he hasn't failed a saint yet. He's got a 100% track record. And I believe that he's able to keep us. I believe he's able to give the weakest saint the power to endure. The feeblest saint shall overcome, though death and hell obstruct the way. So said Isaac Watts. I believe that's right. So don't try to pump your own spiritual muscles up in a kind of bravado way. You understand what I mean? You know, trying to pump your adrenaline. This is what people do. This is what the Word of Faith movement's all about, isn't it? It's trying to pump up faith. I do believe. I will tell yourself 30 times that you are this, that, or the other. I mean, why would you need to convince yourself of things that the Bible says are true if you really have living faith anyway? Trying to make yourself do things and that. Anyway, that's a different matter altogether. But the point is this. You and I need vision of the Lord Jesus. Do you see him? In this passage, in chapter 8, the sum of all that the writer's been speaking of in the previous verse is saying, we have such a high priest. Oh, that's an amazing statement. You and I have a high priest that intercedes for us and that is greater than any other high priest that has walked the face of this earth. We have a high priest, the scriptures say, who does not need daily as other high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. The Lord Jesus is able, as our high priest, to preserve us from falling. One of the things that we find is that this particular high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, has an order of priesthood that is so decidedly above the priesthood under the old covenant of the law that it should give us great consolation. And this is what the previous chapter is all about. In verse 11, he says this of chapter 7, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Look at verse 24, please. And by... And 
But this man, because he continueth for uh, ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The priest under the old law, if you and I were Jewish and we were in the days of being in the wilderness and the tabernacle was erected, the priests were there, the high priests were there, the priesthood under Aaron could not bring you to perfection. All that could do is cover your sins according to the sacrifices. But the priesthood under Melchizedek, according to Melchizedek, who is a type of the Lord Jesus, the priesthood of Melchizedek is an eternal one. So we read in verse 24, an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, Perfection never came through the law and through the high priest on the earth. They ran out of time and they weren't perfect of themselves. But you have a high priest who never dies, who always lives, who's always praying for you, who is always interceding for you. And dear friends, if the Lord Jesus is your high priest this morning, you have strong consolation when it comes to God, don't you? Or do you feel that the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus is somehow feeble in relation to your inability? What kind of impression have you got of him? What kind of view have you got of the Lord Jesus as your high priest? Is it a high view? Do you believe he is able to save you to the uttermost? Or do you believe that you, your inability is far too great for his prayers to get you to glory? It depends where you put the emphasis, doesn't it? I think of the glorious high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 17. Don't you just love that passage? It's one of my favorite passages, um, if I'm allowed to have that. I presume I am. Um, the, if you'd turn with me to John 17 for a moment... Look what the Lord Jesus says in verse 9. I pray for them. This is the, far, the, the Son speaking to the Father, and you have the blessing of eavesdropping on a personal prayer of the Lord Jesus to the Father. What a privilege. This is the Son speaking to the Father. It doesn't get too much higher than this, does it? Verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. In other words, the ones that the Father gave to the Son are the Father's. And all are thine. And thine are mine. Because the Father gave them to the Son. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. Okay? Because the Lord Jesus is going to go, isn't he? He's going to be with the Father, ultimately, after the work of the cross. And he says, and I come to thee. Holy Father... Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. 
While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Thou that thou hast given me, I have kept, and only lost a few. Uh, How many of you were awake then? Okay. Doesn't say that. Probably there's going to be some modern version that says something like that. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. None of them. This is the amazing power of the Lord Jesus. You see, when he's entrusted with things, he keeps things. Have you ever known the Lord Jesus to grow slack in any area of his work? He's diligent, isn't he? The Lord Jesus watches diligently over his own. This is what we see here. The Lord Jesus is saying to the Father, everyone you've entrusted into my hands, I've kept. I've preserved them. Now this should give you tremendous consolation. I hope it does. If it doesn't, I don't think there's a lot more I can do for you. I can pray for you myself. But I mean, if you're not blessed by this, I don't know what will end up blessing you. Anyway, none of them is lost But the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that was all in the hands of the Father. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them. That's right. That's right. What's the proof that you're a child of God? Well, you begin to be disliked. That's one of the big proofs that you're a child of God. Um, Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world. Oh, that's what I'd be praying. You know, if it was other people in the situation where it's difficult, and what if they fall, I'd be saying, Lord, just take them out. Just let's cut this. Time out. Just We need to get them out of here. Do you know what I mean? But the Lord doesn't pray that we get out of the world. He prays that we're kept while we're in the world. And that's one of the greatest things and miracles concerning uh, the child of God. And this is something that Leonard Ravenhill said. That actually, you know, the, the Lord can take somebody who's unholy, make them holy, put them back into an unholy place and keep them holy. That's a miracle, that is. Absolute miracle. And that's what the Lord can do. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now, if you had just got to that particular point in this passage, you could think, well, that's just talking about the disciples. How do I know that applies to me? Well, that's where the next verse comes in. Neither pray I for these alone, ah, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now you are the product of the disciples beginning to preach the gospel throughout all the world. You're the seed of this. And by the grace of God, Jesus, while he was on the earth, not only prayed for his disciples, but he prayed for you in advance of you even being on the earth. Isn't it an amazing thing? I hope you're excited about this. It's marvelous, isn't it? I in them and thou in me, he goes on to say. Oh, let's read verse 22. And the glory which thou givest me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. Oh, that's what we need, don't we? And we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. 
I in them and thou in me, that thou may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Could I, I could just go on with this. The sum of all things is the Lord Jesus is praying for you. And when he went into heaven, he presented himself. I can't even imagine the picture, what it must have been like. But he presents himself to the Father. He enters into the tabernacle, not made with hands, without hands. And he presents himself with his own blood. And the Father sees the sacrifice of his own Son before him glorified. And the whole of heaven erupts, as it were, as the Lord Jesus comes to take his seat. And the sacrifice is accepted in heaven. This is the marvelous work of Calvary. Have you thought about it? Have you considered when, you're, when you, you, you've so reckoned upon your inability to keep yourself right? Praise God. We can't keep ourselves. But how many of us by faith reckon upon the priestly office of our Lord Jesus Christ? So few. So few. I wonder if I ask you this, uh, this morning... And I went round every one of us this morning and I added up the time we spent meditating during the week just gone on the high priestly nature of our Lord Jesus on our behalf. I wonder how many hours that would amount to. Then if I went round you all again, including myself, and we then added up the hours that we dwelt upon the thoughts that would bring us into anxiety... How many hours we spent on them. How many hours we reckon upon our inability. Yes, I'm not able, but God is. Yes, I'm a terrible, uh, uh, terribly prone to falling, but I have a high priest who can keep me. Have faith in the, in the power of the Lord Jesus. This is part of walking with the Lord. It's quite basic, really. But how often we don't set our minds on the right things. Well, the enemy always wants us to get our eyes off the Lord Jesus and onto the wind and the waves. He always does it. He always tries to make them more fearfully um, uh, as though they're going to come to destroy us. But we can trust in the Lord. We can trust in our high priest. The marvelous thing about our high priest, he was made like us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. In all our weaknesses, he's been tempted as we are. Now, that's an extraordinary thing to think about, but you think that your temptations are unusual. So often the enemy puts that as a sort of postscript on the problems that you have. He says, P.S., by the way, nobody else has this problem. <laughs> Haven't you found that in your own experience? You are weird. No other Christian has problems like you. You are unusual. You're unique. I was speaking to somebody this week who has that problem. You know, the enemy comes in and singles you out. But dear friends, you've got to remember one thing. Firstly, there's no temptation that we have that is uncommon to man. Everything that you go through, a thousand other believers have gone through. Okay, So it's not unusual. Secondly, the Lord Jesus has been tempted in all points, in all ways as we have been. He knows what temptation's like. He's never given in to sin over it. And remember that temptation, when you're tempted to sin, it doesn't mean you have Temptation isn't sin. Sin is when you yield to temptation. But temptation of itself is not iniquity. We all get tempted. Jesus was tempted. But he was without sin. But he knows what it is to be tempted to do something that isn't right. 
So, because he's like you, because he's known what it is to have frail flesh, sometimes, I don't know about you, it's just sometimes weariness, isn't it? That just takes hold of you. You're just worn out. The Lord Jesus knows what it's like to be worn out. He sat by a well once when he was weary. And another time it speaks about the fact that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head. The Lord Jesus would be ministering to people for hours. He knows what it's like to grow tired. He knows what it's like to have to face things in front of him that seem impossible. He had the greatest opposition, as it were, difficulty. Not opposition, but difficulty in having to face going to the cross. Imagine having that on you. I think it's amazing that Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and broke it and gave thanks for it. He gave thanks for something that he knew represented his own death. What a position to be in. No murmuring, no complaining, no arguing against. He simply says in the garden, not my will but your will be done. Extraordinary. But he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted to fear. He understands your weaknesses as your high priest. Wow. Marvelous. We have such a high priest. Friends, we could spend all day on the priestly office of our Lord Jesus. All I've given you this this day is a little taster of what the priestly office of our Lord Jesus is that is interceding for you. And the Father hears the prayers of the Son. We need to have a little more confidence, don't we, in the Lord, don't we? A little more confidence in his keeping power, in his ability to preserve us in our weakness. He that has begun a good work in you will go on to complete. He knows how to bring you through to that end. He's able to do it. Blessed be his name. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I'm just about to start my sermon now. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. I was meditating on these verses during the week and just something struck me when I was meditating upon them. There's an order here. There's an order, a pattern if you like, to do with the sanctuary above, to do with our Lord Jesus, that I believe is for our learning that would be for our blessing, that would deliver us from a lot of unnecessary weariness. What is it? Well, notice in verse 2, the Scriptures say that the Lord Jesus is a minister of the sanctuary. Now, a minister is somebody who serves, and service has to do with work, doesn't it? 
when you think of ministry, Jesus ministered when he was on the earth, didn't he? How did he minister? Well, he would heal people. He would preach. He would rebuke at times. He would cleanse the leper. He would feed the thousands. It's work. Ministry is work. It's service. And actually, if you go a little bit further down in the passage that we just read, the writer speaks about the earthly priests. And it says in verse 4, concerning the Lord Jesus, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So the ministers in the tabernacle were serving, they were working. But notice in verse 1, it says, firstly of the Lord Jesus, that he is sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, his service comes after his sitting. His service comes after his sitting. The first thing you read about the Lord Jesus as he comes into this sanctuary above is that he sits down. And then you read... He ministers in the sanctuary after that. And this is a tremendous pattern for us, friends, because all our service needs to come out from our position of rest, a position whereby we have realized that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The first thing that happens to us when we're born again of the Spirit is we do not enter into a doing religion, but a finished work. The Lord Jesus said on the cross with a cry of victory, it is finished. The work was done. There was no more that needed to be accomplished in order to secure eternal salvation. He did the work on the cross. That's why when he ascended into heaven, he sat down. When you've finished work, what do you do? You sit down, don't you? Well, some of you might, I don't know. But I like to sit down after I've worked, because usually I'm standing up. Not like you lot now. Um, but the, the, the fact is, you, you finish something, and then you sit down. And when you're born again of the Spirit, you don't come into a doing religion where you have to climb up to the standard of God to somehow appease God. You see, that is, all you find, that is what you find in all the other religions in the world, isn't it? The moment you start coming into another religion, you begin doing something. But when you're born again of the Spirit into the Christian faith, you cease doing this is a marvelous thing. This is the first principle of the elementary oracles of God in Hebrews chapter 6. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. You cease your own works and you repose and lean upon the Lord Jesus as the only righteousness you own. The reason people work in religion is to gain a form of righteousness. The reason you stop working is because you realize you cannot own any righteousness before God that will be ever acceptable to him. The only righteousness that is acceptable to God is his son. And you are clothed in his righteousness. And in his righteousness, you take your seat. You cease. Rest is the evidence 
of living face. Have you learnt to let go? Have you learnt to lay down your own efforts? When you're seated, you're placing your entire weight of yourself upon something else. And that's exactly what we're meant to do in the Christian faith. We don't begin with a big do, we begin with a big done, as Watchman Nee once said. This is where we start from. And the problem today is that we are so often in the church all involved with activity. There's so much activity often wherever you go. We try to fill our church timetables with as many different things as we possibly can. And we run ourselves ragged in the process and wonder why we don't accomplish to the level of our workload. And we can become disillusioned. And so often it is because we're striving according to our own flesh. It's a zeal without knowledge. It's striving according to the natural man. It's a form of what we call activism. Self-effort, striving, we've got to get the people in, or we've got to do this, and we've got to do that. So we've got to have this program, we've got to have that meeting, we've got to cover all the boxes. And we create our own, a rod for our own backs. The only work that can possibly go through to eternity is the work that God initiates. Unless God begins something in us, It will not last. It will come to an end. Even if we're able to keep it going for the rest of our days, it will ultimately come to an end at the judgment seat of Christ. All our works are going to be judged, whether they be of God or not, whether they're wood, hand, stubble, or gold, precious stones, you know, silver and precious stones. What is the nature of our work? Not what is the weight of our work. Where we begin is also important. We think we've got to strive and do it of ourselves, but do you remember what it says in Psalm 127? You don't? Okay, I'll tell you. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. You can forget it. That build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his (laughs) beloved sleep. It's marvellous, isn't it? Particularly if you like a bit of sleep. But um, we're not to be those that are lazy, mind you. But what does it mean he gives this beloved sleep? Well, it actually you'll find that you'll hear the Lord a lot more easier if you begin to rest yourself a little bit. If you're full of nervous energy, I've got to do this for the Lord, I've got to do for that, you know, running around like a headless chicken you will find that you don't really hear the Lord's voice too easily. And the Lord has to get us to an end of our own resources so that finally we're there. And it's as though the Lord's been waiting for us for two or three years or whatever it is. And finally, it's as though he looks at us and said, have you finished now? Can I begin to speak to you now? You see, when we're running around and restless and constantly active, thinking we've got to do this, thinking we've got to do this, it's as though we're the ones that have got to uphold the kingdom of God. <laughs> the government's on our shoulder. We've just got to keep going. We've just got to keep going. We've just got to keep going. Don't you need a break? No, no. Keep on going. Keep on pressing on. Keep on. And we get all stressed. And then we wonder why we don't hear the Lord. But at least... We've got our wood hand stubble. 
it's folly, isn't it? Or fodder, whatever. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? When you're full of nervous anxiety, it's because there's a lack of living faith. Faith rests itself upon another. He gives his beloved sleep. You can actually, once you've stopped, begin to hear the Lord. But there's so few that do wait and sit and lay themselves a quiet before God. It doesn't have to be for hours and hours and hours and hours. I'm not talking about the time. I just get saying, right, I'm going to stop now and I'm beginning to realize that I'm seated with Christ. And it's not as though that you have to try now to all of you go home and try to imagine that you're seated with the Lord. You know, strain in that way. I must try and remember I'm seated. I must try and remember. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. No, you're just taking your natural propensity out from your workload to try and get it now in a fleshy way to get you seated. You say, well, don't we need to try and get ourselves seated with the Lord in the heavenly places? No! Why not? Because you already are. <laughs> That's the thing. It's realizing that you're already there. You don't need to try and do something that's already happened. <laughs> so you sit yourself with the Lord. And do you know what? It's wonderful when you look at Ephesians 2 because it speaks about the fact that we're seated together with him. Seated together. Togetherness. Us together as the people of God, yes. But also us together with him. It's communion, isn't it? This is what the Christian faith is all about. It's all about relationship. It's about you loving the Lord, and He loves you. And you spend time with Him, and you say to the Lord, isn't it a wonderful day today, Lord? You wake up and you say, Lord, I feel I've got such a headache today, but thank you, I'm seated with you. You see, your emotions may tell you one thing, but if they're opposite to what God tells you, go with God. Why do you go with your emotions? Your emotions are changeable. One minute they're in the skies, the next minute they're under the earth in some quarry somewhere. You need to realize that your emotions are high and low. They're great when they're high, praise God. But either way, it doesn't change the truth. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. If you have a bad day, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Realize it. Nothing changes here. Friends, this is the thing we need to realize. How am I going to end this? I wonder if you turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Luke 10 verse 38. This is a passage of scripture that we all know so well, but I think it's worth us going into. Just as you turn into that, I want to share something with you. One of our reasons why we get so anxious and worked up in our Christian faith or things somehow go wrong, wrong in our walk with the Lord is because we haven't really taken careful heed to first principles. If only we were taught to really lay a good foundation in our walk with God. Everything on top would find its right place. But often, we're not we haven't really come through to a place of acceptance and spiritual understanding over first principles. And it causes problems later on. Let me give you an example. 
Sometimes people, they're born again of the Spirit, and as they go on with the Lord, they begin to realize they need to be sanctified. You understand what I mean by that, don't you? They realize they need to be changed into the likeness of Christ. They need to be altered. They realize as they see something of the Lord, He's totally different to what they're like, and they begin to realize the Lord's convicting them of sin. And then they begin to get anxious about it, and inward and self-observant, and constantly worried about where they stand with the Lord. And they constantly are agitated about themselves. They get really introverted. Because they realize, I've got to be different. I've got to be like the Lord. I'm not holy yet. No man, if I'm not holy, I'm not going to see the Lord, which is absolutely right. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. That's absolutely right. But the thing is, we begin to take it inward. And if we're not careful... We appropriate sanctification in a wrong way into our lives to our own detriment. We begin to become legalistic. We begin to be worried about sin to such a degree in a wrong sort of way whereby we make extra laws on top of what the the Scriptures command to barricade ourselves in from doing some sort of sin to the nth degree. Do you understand what I mean? So... You put extra laws on top of what the scriptures say just in case you might do that sin. And it brings you into legalism. You begin to obey those extra rules as though they're from the word when they're not. Do you understand what I'm saying? What is the problem here? Why is fear coming? Why is anxiety coming over sanctification? Why is the believer constantly thinking, I can't face God? And so he doesn't go to God. I can't. I'm just so, I'm so evil. Yes, we are. But why can he not approach God? You and me, we're here this morning, aren't we? And we know we're pretty, pretty awful people, aren't we? Well, I hope we do. We know, we're, but we're still here and we've been praising God. What is the issue then? Well, the person who's become inward and fearful, barricading themselves in a fleshly kind of way, has never learned that they were firstly justified. Sanctification comes after justification. Do you remember Romans 8? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justifies, he also sanctifies. If I come to the position where I realize my sanctification, where the law begins to deal with John, is from the position that I've already been justified. I'll approach my sanctification from the place of faith and not fear. Do you understand what I'm saying here? But so many Christians have never come to the realization that they have been justified. What does that mean? Declared righteous in the sight of God. Now, if, I'm, if the Lord says, John, you're righteous in my sight, and I accept it, then he says, now, John, I wanted to deal with this. This needs dealing with in your life. I'm not going to be thinking, <gasps> what, if, what, if I'm, what if I'm this? What if I'm not that? What if, do you understand what I'm saying? First principles. Everything, the the foundation needs to be laid right. And then we can build on that. Have you found Luke 10 yet? 
Good, right? Now, verse 38. Now, it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Amen. It's just my bit on the end. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you are worried. You're careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful. And Mary, not you, Martha, but Mary, has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Okay, I'm ending with this. Being seated... Unless you realize your position of being seated, you'll never be, learn to be a good listener. Okay? Never learn to be a good listener. If you're always anxious, always restless, always troubled, always trying in your flesh, it will all be you. But if you and I learn to sit still, be still and know that he is God, everything will flow from that. You see, Martha was originally somebody who sat with Mary. They both sat and heard the Lord. But the scriptures say she was cumbered with a lot of care. She was distracted. So often our cares come in and they distract us. And we get up from the place of being seated. We turn away from the Lord because we realize we've got to serve him. Martha was serving Jesus. And she's worried about it because she's got to serve him. So she comes out from the place of rest and being seated with Mary with Jesus, to a distraction of trying to serve Jesus. And the moment you try and serve Jesus out from yourself, you'll find it become a lot of hard work. And in the end, things begin to get to you. What begins to get to you first is the fact that you're doing all this work and nobody else is helping you. So you become critical of other people. So-and-so just sits there on a Sunday morning. I'm doing all the work. There they are singing praises to God, but I'm doing all the work. It's not right. That kind of attitude, you know, this is Martha territory. Be careful if you're getting down that alley, you know. Distracted away from the presence of God. You're no longer sitting listening to the Lord. No, you've got to get things done. And, oh, dear friends, it's so hard to stop people. Haven't you noticed? Have you ever tried to stop a workhorse, physical or a horse, whatever it is? You know, try to stop them. You know, just, just why don't you sit down for 20 minutes? I can't. You just need a rest. You just, why don't you just put your feet up? Just lay on the bed and meditate on the scriptures. It's impossible. I can't do it. I've got too much work. And if I don't do this and I don't do it, who's going to feed the cat? And who's going to do this? And who's going to put the plaster on so-and-so's leg and all the rest of it? So we choose our priorities to our detriment. But faith realizes I must learn to sit. Do you know, I want to let you into a secret. There's very few leaders in churches who've learned to sit. They're too busy. 
They've got to do this. They've got to see that person. They've got to do the other. They've got to keep up looking as though they're doing what they think they're meant to be doing or what people think they're meant to be doing. So we're into keeping up appearances. And we never wait on God. And we never have anything for anybody else. The sad thing is, we can be as busy as anything trying to help a million people and end up helping nobody. Better to feed two than have a million that you're running around trying to help but not helping them. You need time with Jesus, friends. You won't find a better person to be with. Open the word, sit at his feet, and don't feel condemned. Our position is seated with Christ. And all the world's hollering for your attention, push it out the door. I'd rather have an audience with heaven. Amen. Rather be with the Lord. I need the Lord. I can't help you unless I'm with the Lord. I'll be more of a problem to you. (laughs) Martha's distracted with all this serving. What are you like? What am I like? In the end, she's so flapping about the kitchen that the Lord has to say, Martha, Martha, you're worried. You're just anxious about so many things. And your sister's doing what's right. Your sister's just sitting before me to hear my word. I'm not saying that we become slack over the things we are to do. You understand? I'm not saying that Tuesday morning, if Jared feels he doesn't want to go to work and he just needs to sit there in his quiet time for seven hours, that's fine. I'm not saying that. We've got to be diligent with work. But your service needs to come out from a place of rest. The Lord Jesus is your pattern. He's seated and then he serves. What are you like? Does your service come out of your sitting? When was the last time you just gave the Lord your undivided attention? Just you and the Lord. And you shut the door, said, okay, kids, look. I'm just going to be with the Lord. And I'm not there to tell the Lord what's wrong with my Christianity or to tell him what I think he should be doing for me. I'm there to hear his word. Just to sit, to be still. We live in a generation, friends, that doesn't know what it is to stop. That is, it's everywhere. Haven't you noticed it? Years ago, when I was a kid, all the shops shut on a Sunday. doesn't happen anymore. People work seven days of the week. If I've got somebody I know who's in business in London. They go to work. They live work at home. They go on holiday. They still have to work. They're working on holiday. They can't have a break. They can't have a vacation, even when they're on vacation. We don't know how to stop. This activism, this doing. Sometimes we just feel we have to do. I was listening to a message by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was saying that in 1910 there was a house that was set on fire. And there was a man uh, that was seen with a hammer. On a pillar. Had pillars either side and a wall 
on top of this crossbeam. And this man had a hammer and he's banging against the side pillars while this house is on fire. And people had to stop him and say, what on earth are you doing? If you bang against the pillars, the wall's going to come tumbling down and you're going to crush other people in the process. Why on earth were you doing this? And his answer was, well, I just need to make sure I'm doing something. While the fire's going on, how crazy is that? That's an actual true story. But that's what we're like in the church. Some of us, we just need to be seen to be seeing that we're doing something. Be still and know that I'm God. Now listen, I'm not talking about there should be no work going on in the house of God. Let's all put down our tools and just pretend that nothing's wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let your service come out of your communion with the Lord Jesus. Then it will be living. Then it will be effective. It will go a lot longer. It will, be, it will hit the spot. Imagine if all of us did that this week. We realized our position was seated with Christ. And all our service came out of our sitting. None of us would be worn out. Have you ever known the Lord Jesus to wear anybody out? We can be so zealous. Wear ourselves out in 10 minutes. We need the Lord. We need his strength. We need his strategy. We need his ways. So, dear friends, choose the good part that Mary chose. Sit with the Lord. Wait to hear what he would say. Quiet your heart. Quiet your heart. Be still and know that he is God. Be like Jesus, who in the sanctuary made without hands, firstly sat down. We enter into a finished work. We stop. We cease from our works and our labors. And then we wait for the Lord. And we sit with him. And then the Lord begins to speak into our lives his purposes. And when he says, go, we go. And I promise you, the commandments of God are not burdensome. The commandments of Pharaoh are. He'll make you work harder with less straw. Don't be under his influence. Don't be condemned for sitting before the Lord. Let the Lord lead you. Don't be afraid to open the book and say, Now, Lord, I want to be with you in this. Let's run together. Let's do this work at your pace. So-and-so is a million, million miles down the road from me. They're so much further on in the Lord with me. But Lord, I want to walk with you where you are for me now. May the Lord help us to wait on him, feed on him, and see him. Everything could be changed. Amen. Let's have a further word of prayer, shall we? Dear Father, however failingly I've sought to bring this message to your people, thank you for their patience. Just ask that, Lord, all that has been of you would be worked into our lives. We pray that you'd help us to have that good foundation. We wouldn't be striving according to the flesh because of a lack of knowledge. Oh God, help us to do things your way. And we pray that, Lord, we may know the rest that you give to your people. 
We thank you that you don't require of us anything that you don't give us the power to do. Praise you, Lord. And we thank you that you're so helpful. Lead us on with you, Lord, this day. Bless our fellowship over lunch. Cause us to know your peace and help us to walk with you. In the days ahead, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you all. Thank you all for coming.